understand from what Bob has told me, is a, a gathering of uh, Christians of uh, interdenominational, all faith, gathering of believers, and you was in corporate, spoke at one of the churches there, and several of you and several of your families were able to hear some of your sharing at that time. I know he was a blessing to you, and we're very fortunate and consider it uh, a real blessing from the Lord that Alan could be here for these times, these times tonight, tomorrow, Saturday, to break the word with us and to proclaim to us some truths about spiritual maturity. And Alan, after we sing, Open My Eyes, Lord, we'd like to ask you to come and begin to... That should always be our desire to truly seek to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Our lives will never be any more than our revelation of Jesus. And to the extent that we fail to have and experience that kind of revelation, to that same extent, our lives fail to be filled with him and with the fullness that he seeks to bring to us. In these next number of sessions together, we are going to be talking about a number of things, all of which I believe add up to one overall theme, and that is how to be men of maturity. There is a difference between spirituality and maturity. Maybe not a major difference, but I believe a significant difference. The Corinthians were tremendously spiritual people, but they were not tremendously mature people. Simon Peter was very spiritual. He wasn't always very mature. And God is seeking to bring all of his body to a place of spiritual maturity, where we become believers such as Christ intended us to be through his major investment in our lives through salvation and his indwelling presence within our lives. I have a definition of maturity. We'll probably deal a little bit more at length with it. My definition of maturity is rightly responding to life situations according to biblical patterns of behavior. Uh, yeah, I thought I'd have to go over that a little more slowly, and we'll deal with it a little bit more. Rightly responding to life's situations according to biblical patterns of behavior. Spiritual maturity, simplistically spoken, would be Christ likeness. There was never a situation that Jesus was confronted by except that he responded to that situation in a way that would please the Father and glorify the Father. So rightly responding, most of us go through life. I went through most of the years of my life and probably still do to a degree, although I certainly pray that the Holy Spirit is causing me to do so less and less. But most of us spend a great deal of our time reacting to life situations and not responding to situations. We are the rebound from the things that happen to us and happen around us. And so what happens to us and around us begins to affect what's happening in us and we lose control of ourselves and we have vocabulary we really weren't aware we still had stored away. We thought we'd gotten rid of that a long time ago. And we have emotions that we thought we were the master of that we lo and behold find that certain situations are really the master of those emotions. And we are forever reacting to things. That's one of the things you see in Simon Peter's life. He was forever reacting. But spiritual maturity or Christ-likeness is learning to respond 
Now, there may not be a grammatical difference, but for my understanding and for our use, we're going to draw a difference between reacting and responding. You see, you choose my reactions by what you do to me. I choose my responses by what I choose to do in return. So reactions are what you control in my life. Responses are what I trust that the Holy Spirit, with my cooperation, controls coming forth out of my life. So spiritual maturity is what we'll be talking about, how to rightly respond to all of life's situations according to God's patterns of behavior, the Bible's patterns of behavior. The first thing that I always want to consider in a setting such as this, these several days that we're going to be together, the first thing that I usually ask out of my own heart in life is what is my desire? What are my expectations? You see, I believe that God created us and God certainly redeemed us to have purposeful lives. All of us have a need to live lives of purpose, lives in which there is meaning, See, the unconverted have a real problem with finding what difference does life make? What significance, what contribution are they going to have to give? That after all is said and done, what lasting effect have we left behind us? We were created with a need to be significant, with a need to be useful, with a need to have meaning in our lives. But so many times we fail to experience purposeful living because we waste so much of our life in less than purposeful activity. It is possible for you just to be here on this men's retreat. It's possible for us to spend all of these hours together, to go home, to look back and say, you know, I really enjoyed that. That was a great time. And to have had no particular desire and no particular expectations entering into this time together. And I am a firm believer that much of what you and I receive from God is the direct product of what our desire is and what our specific expectations are. If I were to ask you to turn to the person beside you and to verbalize in one sentence or two sentences at the very most, what is the chief desire you have that is the cause of your being here? Now, all of us would want to sound very spiritual, Probably some of us, if we were real honest, would say to get away for a day or two. Well, that's spiritual also. Jesus said to his disciples, come apart and rest a while. He was saying, come apart before you fall apart. And there are enough pressures in our world to threaten exactly that happening. In fact, it could well be possible that behind the smiles and the well-composed countenances, there could possibly be some of us here who are feeling the strain of almost falling apart. So that wouldn't be unspiritual if we said just to be away for a few days. But I too believe that there is probably, I trust there is anyway, a desire deep within many of your hearts, if not all of your hearts, to say, I have come because I expect to have an encounter with God, because I truly believe that Jesus is going to meet me because I've extended myself toward him. You see, God desires on your behalf. God has tremendous expectations out of you. He would not have redeemed you if he didn't. He has tremendous expectations for you and expectations from you. So it is very important that we determine what our desires are. What's your desire tonight? What do you expect to happen in this particular hour that we spend together? 
The world has a beatitude. Jesus gave beatitudes in Matthew 5. The world has a beatitude that says, Blessed is the man who expects little or nothing, for he shall not so easily be disappointed. And it's very possible that some ex came expecting little or nothing. And if you are trying to play life real safe and never be hurt, never be disappointed, never come up short, then that's the only way to live, is not to expect anything. And everything that happens, no matter how minute, is nevertheless free gravy. But that's awfully short-sighted in the spiritual life. When God has revealed that he has such a big heart for us, that's what this book is. This book is not some sacred leather-bound thing that I dust and carry with me when I want to look pious. This book is a love letter from the heart of God. This book reveals to me what God's desires are for me, what God's expectations are for me, how grand the design of God is in my life. You see, you and I have this tremendous need to live lives of purpose because we are born in the image of a God who is a God of purpose. Nothing that God does or has ever done or ever yet will do is ever apart from God's purpose. God does not merely create. He is not the mad inventor who puts some wheels and pulleys and screws and bolts and plugs it in and then figures out what to do with it. No, God's creative genius has always been preceded by God's creative purpose. And because of that, because God created us with purpose, God has placed inherently within us the need to discover that purpose. But we will not discover the grand purpose of our lives, as large as that may be, until we honestly begin to come to grips with individual activities much like this and really try to sort out what's my purpose? What's the significance of my being here? There's an article I, I just will read to you. It's, he said it better than I could paraphrase it or pretend that it's mine. He said, very few Christians know who they really are and even less have defined their mission in life. Perhaps the best way to start is by asking yourself some basic questions and then writing down the answers. Why am I here? What is my purpose for living? Why did God put me on earth as contrasted with anyone else? And then after you've written down your answers, come back with another set of questions, such as what is my greatest ambition? What is the one thing that I want to accomplish in the next 10 years? What is the one thing that I want to accomplish in my lifetime? For if your answer to the second set of questions is not identical to the answer of the first set, you are a very mixed up individual. For instance, if you say God put you here to have fellowship with him, but your greatest ambition is to be president of the company, then eventually your life is going to fall apart because your purpose and your desires are not consistent. Fortunate is the man who says his purpose and his desire is to make money. He may go to hell, but at least he'll go in style. After all, there's nothing that compares to being buried in a bronze casket. It's so very, very impressive. But frustrated is the man who says his purpose on earth is to glorify God, but his number one goal is to buy a condominium on the beach. Condos and making money are not evil. But if they are your greatest desire, you better make sure that's why God put you here on earth. Otherwise, you're going to be a very miserable person. The happiest of all people are those who know they are, who know who they are, who know where they are going and what their basic mission is while they're here. Every person should at least once a year sit down with paper and pen and write out the answers to these basic questions. 
If a pilot did not continually check his direction and alter his course to line up with a compass, he very quickly is in trouble. And if he's carrying passengers, they're in trouble too. And the same is true with God's people. Define your life's goals and purposes. Put aside everything that detracts or distracts and strive only for that goal. As truly as it's consequential that that pilot forever checks his course, because of the passengers that trust in him, I believe that it is doubly consequential that you and I, as husbands and fathers, as leaders in congregations, that we are forever checking our course to see if we know what is the purpose God has for my life, what is my desire, and what are my expectations out of this life, and dare to believe that in Christian maturity God will begin causing those various signposts to line up instead of that inconsistent tearing and pulling and struggling that so many of us so much of the time are experiencing. So what would you, if you were to ask God for one thing before Saturday evening comes, what would be that one thing you would ask God to do in your life between now and the end of this retreat? How many of you think you could answer that? Right. I trust that before this retreat is over, you will be able to answer that. In fact, if you are not able to yet, I would say that that would become my priority. Bob was mentioning tomorrow morning to take some time before breakfast and have a word of prayer, have a time of prayer with another individual. I don't know of anything that my prayer for each of you would be any more thoroughly than to say, God, cause there to be created in everyone, every man's life, in my life as well, Lord, an overwhelming sense of spiritual desire. Cause my life to have focus. Cause my life to have aim. Cause my life not to be scattered to whatever happens and forever reacting or forever re bouncing back from crises and situations and circumstances. But God, put my life on target. Help me to find the track upon which my life is to be lived, the purpose of God for my life, and help me to begin by in this retreat discovering part of that for me. There's a rather startling scripture when you really consider its implications and I know we haven't read don't be frightened I do not usually start with a text and then have a message I usually have a message and end with a text so don't be terribly nervous but don't be encouraged if we come up with a scripture here in a moment it won't be the, the one that we're ending with so don't get excited and fold your papers up but there's a scripture its implications have often challenged my heart in James it simply said, taking out of context really, but not doing anything injustice to the application of it, that says, but you have not because you ask not. I have often wondered, I've been challenged by that, because I've often wondered how many times I've absent-mindedly blundered through parts of my life or seasons of my life or even weeks or days of my life and missed something that was in the big heart of God for me because I just was oblivious to the fact that God had a desire. I didn't have a desire. I didn't have expectations. And I wonder how much in my life I might have missed because there was not that spiritual desire, that sense of being spiritually on target. 
You see in 1 Kings, the third chapter, when Solomon is the new king of Israel, having replaced his father David, and Solomon kneels as really a youth with this vast responsibility of judging and leading and directing and reigning over this tremendous nation, Israel, because the reign of David and the early reign of Solomon was literally the height of Israel's spiritual history. And Solomon bows as a young man, and God says, Solomon, ask me what you would have me do for you. If God appeared to you tonight and said, ask me what you'd have me do for you, what would you say? It's not like the tooth fairy appearing and saying, what would you like? It is really God saying, can you grasp what my greatest desire is for you and ask me according to my own heart? You found the surest way to get your prayers answered? Ask what's on the heart of God. And you pray according to the will of God. First John, the fifth chapter, assures you not only that he hears you, but that you'll have the petitions that you've asked of him. So what's the secret? God appears to Solomon and says, Solomon, ask me. You remember what Solomon asked him for? He could have asked him for the life of all of his enemies. That would have been a normal thing. could have asked him for great wealth and abundance. A lot of us would be very prone to ask for both of those things. Instead, he said, give me wisdom. Give me an understanding heart. Give me a heart of discernment that I, a youth, may be able to judge so great a people. And God said, Solomon, the thing that you've asked pleases me. And because you have not asked for the life of your enemies and because you have not asked for wealth and abundance, but you've asked for wisdom that you might lead so great a people, I'm going to give you not only wisdom as you've asked, I'm also going to add to you victory over all of your enemies and I'm going to give you wealth in all of its richest abundance. You remember in Mark, the 10th chapter, when there was a blind man, Jesus was passing by, his notoriety and fame had spread before him, and he was followed by a multitude, a great press of people were surrounding him, and great was the tumult, and here was a blinded beggar, blind from birth, Bartimaeus, Timaeus, uh, or Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus is what it means. And Bartimaeus began to cry out, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And someone said, Bartimaeus, be quiet. He doesn't have time for you. You ever wondered or had suggested to you that Jesus really doesn't have time for you? You ever had anybody try to squelch your spiritual yearnings and desires as though God really wouldn't have time to be bothered by what was in your heart? And it says, And Bartimaeus cried out the more, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And the Bible says, And Jesus stood still and commanded that Bartimaeus be brought to him. And Bartimaeus casting away his garment, the Bible says. See, he had an expectation. He would never need the tattered robe of a beggar if he could only get to Jesus. And Bartimaeus was brought to Jesus, and Jesus said to Bartimaeus, What would you have me do for you? Bartimaeus said, open my eyes. That's what we sang to begin tonight, didn't we? Open my eyes, Lord, I want to see Jesus. To reach out, reach out and touch him and say that I love him. When was the last time from deep in your heart you expressed your love for God? You see, we are men in a men's retreat and we really do not have to worry about being macho. You see, there aren't any ladies around for us to have to put on our masculine heirs to somehow impress them. And Dick referred to it as he was urging you to participate this evening. Sometimes men really have a problem being expressive with God. We shouldn't. 
I'm a father. I have two children. I have a boy that'll be 15 in a couple of weeks and a little girl that just turned 12 about a month ago. I want my children, I want my son to feel perfectly free to be expressive of his love for me. Don't you think the heart of God desires us to learn how to be expressive? And Jesus said, Bartimaeus, what would you have me do? Jesus is asking every one of us that tonight. He's saying, what is it that you desire for me to do in your life? Why are you here? What is the overwhelming, driving passion? Do you have it? How many of you have ever had an overwhelming, driving passion in your life? Thank goodness, scared me to death. No one was going to raise a hand there for a moment. I don't know anything more horrifying than to be with passionless men, to live passionless lives, to not have something that is more dear to you than life itself. And in the kingdom of God, there must come the passion of men's hearts. You and I have got to take seriously that we are called into a kingdom. We're not just meandering through life. We're not just going to church on Sundays. We're called to live within a kingdom of righteousness. And I believe that kind of kingdom demands passion out of my life. I think it demands passion out of your life. What is that desire? Why is desire so important for us? Jesus was a man of passion. Jesus was a man who did not feel uncomfortable to weep. Jesus was a man who was not uncomfortable playing with children and laughing. Jesus was a man who was not uncomfortable expressing himself. Jesus was, not, uh, was a man that was not uncomfortable being in festive times or being in funeral processions. Jesus turned to his disciples during the latter part just prior to his arrest and crucifixion in Luke the 22nd chapter and he said, with great desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you. Why? What, what was the desire? Why was it that he had a desire to eat this Passover? Was he just hungry? No, there was something he wanted to share of himself. There was something of himself he wanted to give and he knew the events that were before him. He knew that the hours were brief. He knew what waited for him. He knew the purpose of God. He lived a life that was perfectly on track. He lived a life that was perfectly focused. He lived a life that had only one intention, and that was to do the will of him that sent him. Jesus, the only one I know, could say, I do always those things that please the Father. He said, my desire is I delight to do the will of God. He said, I have meat to eat that you know not of, and that is to do the will of him that sent me. Jesus had great desires. He had desire to share with his disciples in the intimacy of the upper room. Men who were sharing their hearts with one another. Jesus sharing those last hours, his last words. I'm told that a man's last words are supposed to be his most significant words and supposedly his most memorable. These were to be, to a great extent, Jesus' last major time that he'd be spending with these disciples. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman church, believers that he had never met. Uniquely so, the Roman, the Roman believers were some that Paul had had little or nothing to do with their conversion. Most of the, the, the epistles that Paul writes are epistles to people he's won to the Lord and churches that he's established. But here he had a longing desire to be at Rome 
Even when they said, Paul, to go to Rome, that'll be the end of your life and the end of all your desires. He still had a, a desire to be at Rome. Many times he expressed it. He writes in the first chapter of Romans and he says, I, I desire to come to you. I remember you always, never ceasing to mention you in my prayers that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. He said, I have a desire to see something happen in your life and I long to be there to see that begun. He said in Romans, the 10th chapter, in the first verse, he said, I have a great desire, and that is that Israel might be saved. It was for that that Paul could say, I would wish myself to be accursed for my brethren. If my death, if my loss would bring about the conversion of my people, Paul says, that would fulfill my desire. What's your desire? Now, those may seem somewhat overwhelming or threatening compared to what we're talking about and our desires for this conference. But you see, until we begin to live lives of desire, until we begin somewhere to start expressing the purpose of God, until in the smallest ways, in the simplest fashion, we can begin to let God get a hold of our heart and begin to work passionately within our lives, how in the world will we ever come into the realm, into the sphere of living these tremendous lives centered in the will of God? If I can't find the will of God for the next two and a half days, how in the world do you think I could find the will of God for the next 25 years? Open your Bible to Psalm 27, verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 4, it's a psalm of David. David was a man of great desire. He was a man that God, by the Holy Spirit, records in the book of Acts, was a man after God's own heart. In spite of his failures, he nevertheless was, by God, said to be a man seeking after the heart of God. In verse 4 of Psalm 27, he said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing have I desired of the Lord. We have a lot of problems in our life. One that we've been talking about is to not have any desires and therefore live very aimless lives, very purposeless lives. But the other is to have too many desires so that we never accomplish or fulfill or find any real sense of release in any of those desires. The other would be to have conflicting desires. Have you ever had two desires which tended to be contradictory one to the other? Like the desire to live for God, but the desire to kind of do your own thing and live as you please? It is very important that we allow God to hopefully begin singling our lives focusing them. One thing have I desired of the Lord. Not what are all your desires for life, not what are all your desires and ambitions for your career, not what are all your hopes and dreams for your family and children, not, not what all, all of your wishes are for your church and the city of Corpus Christi and your ministry there, but what is the single most prevalent desire that God would have out from your life? One thing have I desired. 
You see, it's very important about our desires because our desires literally become the motivations that cause our seeking. And that will I seek after. All of us are exactly like David. We seek after that which we desire. You want to know what you really desire? It's not what you sometimes think. It is what you invest your life in. That reveals your desire, doesn't it? Oh, we're so able to delude ourselves. I won't use deceive. Delude sounds a whole lot nicer. But we are able to delude ourselves, aren't we? We talk about all these noble desires, but the truth is when we start examining and taking inventory of our life, when we start seeing what it is we spend most of our life seeking after, that's truly, actually what it is we've been desiring, isn't it? Someone said that a definition of worship is bowing down and pouring out. You want to find what it is that you desire? Look for what you worship. Look for what it is you bow down to. And look for what it is you pour out your life for. And that's where you'll find what your desire is. That will I seek after. What was the desire of David? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Now remember, the house of the Lord in the Psalms and the Old Testament is not talking about a place. In fact, the temple had not been constructed yet. The Old Testament wilderness tabernacle was a long time since. David was not talking about a particular setting. He wasn't talking about a building. He wasn't talking about stained glass. He wasn't talking about carpets and pews. He was talking not about a place, but about a presence. It's the same use that we find in Psalm 23, verse 6, when he said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, he wasn't talking about a place, he was talking about a presence. And I will dwell in the presence of the Lord all, forever, all the time. And here he's saying, that's the desire that I have, to dwell, to abide in the presence of God. Do you honestly live your life with a sense that you're living it within the presence of God? Have you ever really began to live in the sense of the God who is always there? Or do you have to always find him? Do you have to go to a place to find God? Do you have to get with a person to find God? Do you have to ca contact the pastor to find God? Do you have to wait till Sunday to experience God? One thing have I desired, and that will I seek after, that I might dwell a habitual abiding that I might dwell in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life to behold. I found that a great deal, if I'm not terribly careful, a great deal of my experience with God can become uh, a mixture of moments here and moments there, bits and pieces, fragmented relationship with God. When I'm experiencing God's presence at this moment and then I'm walking for days until I come up against a dilemma and as soon as I face a dilemma then I'm trying to find the presence of God again. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about that kind of desire and expectation from God that is so overwhelming, that is such a passion, such a motivation of our life that it dares to call us to constantly experience what it means to abide in God's presence to have a sense of God's presence. That's something that has to be developed in our life. It's not something that comes naturally to us. To behold the beauty of the Lord. I took a few moments to walk around this 
retreat center before supper. There's some beautiful sights here, aren't there? If you like the beauty of Texas country, the lake. In fact, there's something very beautiful about some of the wildness of some of the areas in Texas. Not all freshly manicured. You see, I've spent most of my life, my adult life, in California. In California, everything has to be manicured. California, they don't have lawns, they have landscaping. California, they don't have bushes that God grows, they have shrubs that the landscaper plants. But you don't behold beauty in a moment. You behold beauty by looking and gazing and by taking your time. And I think we've missed much of the beauty of God and much of the passion of God and miss much of the desire within God's heart because so many times we run into God's presence and out of God's presence. We give God three minutes here and then we spend three weeks occupying and entertaining ourselves. But David said, God, I want to experience what it means to live in your presence constantly. And as long as I'm living in your presence, I want to be doing something. I want to be beholding. I want to stand gazing at the beauty of the Lord. And out of that gazing at the beauty of the Lord will come naturally the inquiring. Have you ever had questions you wanted to ask God? If you could stand face to face before God literally and physically right now, are there some questions you'd like to ask him? You all, every once in a while, look so tremendously spiritual as though you have uh, never had questions that weren't terribly spiritual that you'd like to get an answer for. Like, why? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why me? <laughs> you ever felt that way in a situation? Why me? Why not somebody else? It's always better to pass the buck, especially when it's unfavorable. But so many of the times we do not come to understanding in our spiritual lives and we do not get the privilege of inquiring in the temple of the Lord and having our hearts cries, our hearts questions answered and responded to because God does not simply answer questions unless they are from the honest heart of a worshiper who is willing to linger in God's presence. That's the other thing about relating to God. God does not relate in a hurry. God is like a good friend. And that is that the intimacy develops because of significant time that we've shared together and because of significant experiences that we've had together. And if we are to be men of maturity, we must be men of understanding. And if we are to be men of understanding, that understanding will only come out of the product of being men of beholding the beauty of God, men of desire to experience the presence of God, men who learn what it means to be constantly in touch with God in their lives. That's what your city is waiting for, you know. That's what your world is looking for. That may be what your families are looking for. It's what your friends and neighbors are looking for. Where do people turn, no matter how unchurched, are irreligious they are when they've got a problem. They try to find somebody they know that they believe is in contact with God. Someone that has a touch 
an inside route to the Lord. And if we are to become mature men, we will be mature men because we have learned how to be men of godly desire, men of God-given passion, men of God-given commitment to stay in the presence of God, to dwell upon the beauty of the Lord, so that out of our experience of worshiping God, God will unveil himself to us, God will unfold before us. You do not learn this word because you sit down at a desk and begin to read it. You learn this word because you learn to know the God who authored this word. The Bible is not a book for you to unravel. It's a heart for you to discover. Discover the heart behind the book and you'll understand the words within the book. The problem then of so much of our purposeless activity is these contradicting desires and conflicting activities, that we do not truly seek after the things that we ought to be seeking after, so even though we try to get our desires properly oriented, many times they're not genuine desires. The word seek is actually akin in the New Testament Greek with the word worship. So the things that I seek are truly the things I'll worship. So let me, if you do not have a desire, let me give a desire. Let me suggest a desire for these times that we spend together. And that is that we are here to receive from the Lord. We are here to grow in the Lord. We are here to comprehend something of himself out from his word. But how do we receive from the Lord? Receiving from the Lord, receiving the desires that we have, is always the result of a deliberate decision a determination, and a discipline. A decision, a determination, and a discipline. There is one moment where we make up our mind. There is one moment where we choose that we want what God wants. There is one moment when we say no to ourselves and we say yes to God. There is a deliberate occasion when we specifically say, God, I don't want to be ordering my life because I found it disorderly. Instead, I want to discover what your purpose and your focus for my life is. And God, I decide now to go your way. How many of you ever made that kind of decision? I think all of us have. But we all know that just making the decision is not really enough, isn't it? Boy, I wonder how many times I've made decisions that I didn't carry through. You ever made decisions that turned out just to be good intentions? That's why decision requires determination. It says, I have decided, and now I am determined that what I've decided I'm going to behave according to. I'm going to walk consistently with the choice that I've made. So I decide, I determine. But boy, the hardest part of it is having the godly discipline to stay true to that determination. Because there's some things that start off that become apparently more difficult as we go on. The easiest thing in God that ever happened in my life was salvation. And ever since then it's required unimagined discipline. In fact, I find that the further that I walk on with God and the more that I open my life to God, the more discipline that God requires of me, the more discipline that God asks of me. Haven't you found that? You see, we're called 
not merely to be followers, not merely to be converts, not merely to be believers. You know what we're called to be, don't you? Disciples. You can tell very quickly that that word is very closely akin to discipline. A disciple is not just a follower of another. A disciple is a committed learner from another. And discipline is that my commitment is going to be, is going to be able to, I'm going to be able to stand true to what my commitment is. I'm going to allow God to keep my life within the decision and determination that I've made. I'm going to give God's permission to correct my life whenever I veer from the decision that I made. You ever get a little bit angry or peeved when God begins to kind of fence you in? When God begins to restrict the path of your life? He usually only does it at the time that we're wanting the most to burst out, to run amok, to do our own thing, to pick up where we left off to renege upon our commitments. And that's where this matter of discipline comes in. What is it then which will allow me to receive from the Lord, to grow in the Lord, to receive from the Word? We've talked about this matter of desire. That's the first thing. Openness is another. Our desires are tremendously important because Psalm 37 and 4 says that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll give us the desires of our heart. It scares me to death sometimes that he might give me the desires of my heart and they might not be the right desires. I'm afraid many times that Alan Randolph would shortchange himself because... God's heart is much bigger on my behalf than even my heart is. God's expectations for me and dreams for me and ambitions for me and intentions for me are quite logically much larger than my own. And so I want God to constantly be creating the right kind of desires within me and those right desires come out of delighting myself in the Lord. But this matter of openness, I think that would translate into a word availability. Do you ever have a problem spelling when suddenly it, none of it looks right? Now, I know how to spell availability. It just suddenly started looking so long. Openness is being available to God. And that's a special quality that has to be developed in our life because most of us also are honest enough to admit that for a great part of our life and our adult years we have not always been terribly available to God. Why did God have to say in Ezekiel, I sought for a man? I sought for a man among them that would stand in the gap and make up the head. God had to say on that occasion, but I found none. Because if we do not have the right kind of desires, then we'll be off seeking after our desires and very possibly we'll be out of touch or out of place or out of spot at the moment that God was wanting us to experience the best that he has for us.
openness and availability. Can you think of some scriptural examples of people who are open to the things of God, who were available to the immediacy of what God was wanting and saying? I can think of one who wasn't. I can think of Adam when God came in the garden looking for him. Adam! I wonder if God's ever come saying, Alan, or Don, or Jim, or Bob, where are you? Why was God there? God was there to have fellowship. God was there because he had brought about his creation and had great delight and desire to fellowship with that creation. It does not surprise me that you and I want to fellowship with God. I mean, which man in his right mind wouldn't want to have fellowship with that which is immortal? What human would not want to fellowship and walk with and experience the divine? But it is absolutely incomprehensible to me why God would want to fellowship with us. Why would God want to spend time with you? But he does. I think of a young boy, Samuel. Samuel was, had been consecrated. He was an answer to prayer from his mother, Hannah. And as a response to, in her gratefulness to God, she gave her son back to the service of the Lord and he became a charge or a ward to the aging prophet, Sam, uh, the aging prophet Eli. And God came walking through the temple that night and God cried out Samuel and Samuel awakened, heard his name, ran into Eli, presuming that it was Eli wanting him and Eli said, go back to bed, son, you didn't hear me, it wasn't me. And he went back to bed and heard his name again, Samuel, Samuel, ran to Eli and said, Eli, why did you call? And, Sa and Eli finally said, son, it wasn't me that called you, but it was the Lord that was calling you. Go back and the next time that you hear your name, say, speak, Lord, for your servant here. And the tremendous life and experience of Samuel, who is one of the most significant personalities in the Old Testament. Samuel is literally a transition man. He is a man in the kingdom of God during a time of transition when, when God, in response to the people's desires, is moving from a theocracy to a monarchy. And Samuel is the, the one, the liaison between those two great periods of God's dealing with men. And, and all of that started because Samuel, as a young boy, was open to God. He was available to God. He may not have recognized immediately, but as soon as he had understanding, he was instantly open. He went back. I can always imagine that young boy laying with his eyes closed in the dark, but with both ears as open to a pin drop as possible. Just waiting until out of the darkness again came the voice, Samuel. And he said, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. And God began to reveal his heart to a boy all because of availability. Now, if God can find the availability within a boy and cause that boy because of openness to the things of God and openness to the heart of God and openness to the will of God and openness to the desire of God to be so available to him and out of that, God can raise up, God can unveil himself to that young man and cause that young man to literally be the, the pivotal point in God's dealings with an entire nation. How much more could God do with one man out of here? You say, oh, you're talking about things that happen in the Bible. Those kinds of things don't happen today. Our world is as much, if not more, critical. Our generation is more critical to the purposes of God than Samuel's generation was.
says in that day there was no open vision there was no open understanding men were not walking in an understanding of revelation and so God found someone who was available I can think of Mary Mary the mother of Jesus she was just a simple handmaiden she wasn't anything special except for the quality of character and life I think sometimes we have we Protestants have wrongly reacted to the Roman Catholic Church's adoration of Mary and I think we've relegated Mary to a lesser place than actually she should have in our regard because God highly regarded her you know the one quality that stands out in Mary when an angel appears to her and says Mary you're going to bear a child and she says how can that be I've never known a man he says the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you and the power of the the highest is going to overshadow you and that which is brought forth of you will be of the Holy Ghost and will be a child and that child will be called Jesus he'll be the Son of God and Mary's only words were behold thine handmaiden that's the feminine equivalent of bond slave masculine the word there is the opposite of a word that Paul uses a great deal, doulos, bond slave, love slave. And it's the feminine gender of that. And she says, Lord, I'm your bond slave. Let it be unto me according to your word. She just totally abandoned herself to the will of God. She totally abandoned herself in complete and absolute trust to what it was that she understood the desire of God to be for her. I wonder what it would take for you and I to abandon ourselves to total obedience to what the desire of God is for our life. What would God need to do for you to be able to be completely open and totally and fully available to whatever he wanted from you? Don't dwell on that too long because it's rather scary, especially with our warped concept of the will of God. We always know that the will of God will be the one thing we hate the most. A young man who serves an associate pastor in our congregation is a tremendously and highly gifted musician. And all through his teen years, with his great love for music and his great love for God, he was scared to death just knowing that the moment he submitted his life to the will of God, God would take music away. That is a warped and distorted view of what God's will is, isn't it? Then what is it that prevents us being open with God? What is it that stops us from being available to God? What is it that causes us to relate to God on a very conditional basis? When was the last time you experienced, even for a moment, a totally unreserved, unconditional abandonment to what God was saying in your life or what God was wanting from your life or what God was asking in obedience from you at that immediate moment? When was the last time you could throw yourself in obedience to, to what God's will was as you understood it at the moment without any kind of special lifesaver in case you thought he was saying swim and you found he was asking you to sink? When was the last time, like Peter, you heard Jesus say, Peter, it is me, come. We only need to know two things. First, uh, that it is him. <laughs> You'll drown, not just sink, if it's not him. 
that it is him and that he's the one that's bidding you come. When was the last time you were able to kick your legs over the boat? I think we would be astounded with what God could do in our churches if men began to be men of godly passion and men began to be men of openness to the things of God, availability to the will of God. Daydream for a moment. Come on. Be imaginative for a moment. What could God do in Parkdale Baptist Church if no more than just the men who are here right now, I'm not talking about however many hundreds attend on Sunday morning. I mean, Jesus didn't need a thousand to do a great deal. He started with 12 and one of those was a rascal and a number of the others weren't too terribly reliable. But what would happen in your church? What would happen in your city? What would happen in your life? What would happen in your marriage? What would happen in your family if you came to such a place of trust in God that you were fully able to abandon yourself to the will of God? You see, spiritual maturity is not academic. Spiritual maturity is not getting more spiritual or scriptural intellect. Spiritual maturity is not merely the increasing of our knowledge of, of the Bible. Spiritual maturity, apart from abandonment to the will of God, is superficial at best. And I fear that for a long time, I did anyway, and I fear that a lot of us sometime approach God far too academically. He's a concept. He's an idea. He's theology. He's orthodox doctrine without learning that he's a father, without experiencing him as father, without trusting our life to him as father. I think it's very noteworthy that when Jesus hangs upon a cross and the thunder begins to roar and the skies begin to darken and everybody runs in terror, I think it's noteworthy how he addressed God. He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. In that kind of moment when you have no anchor, you have no answers, you have none of your normal securities, I want to tell you, none of us will commend our spirit into the hands of someone who is any less than that the intimacy and the faithfulness and the sureness, the certainty of a father who loves us. When my children are frightened, I don't know why, my son's almost as big as I am, but if for any reason my children are frightened, there's something about father, something about dad's presence, dad's voice, dad being near, that their fears are forgotten. Their fears are no less real. They're just set aside because of trust. The psalmist said, Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Would you do something for me? Take your hands. 
and cup them, make a fist with your palms, your, the heel of your hand up toward the ceiling. That's it. Now just imagine that you're holding something very tightly there, something that's very precious. And the more precious something is, the more tightly we cling to it. If you had about a five-carat five marquee-cut diamond, and this was about six-inch weeds, and you knew that if you dropped it, there was a good chance you couldn't find it, I guarantee you, you'd be able to hold very, very tightly, wouldn't you? Now, as you're holding that tightly, just begin to unroll your fingertips out away from you and then turn your hands downward. How effectively could you hold on to something? That is the Hebrew picture word of commit. The Hebrew picture word, the Hebrew language is a very picturesque language anyway. It literally means to roll off of onto another. And that's what openness and availability is. Openness is to roll off my life into the hands of God so God is now responsible for me. I am so tired of having to be responsible for me. I'm so tired of having to look out for my best interests. I'm so tired of trying to watch that no one gets advantage. Aren't you? So God said the answer to that is very simple. Abandon your life to me. Give it away to me. Let it become my responsibility. Let me assume responsibility for that. Commit your way unto me. The ways that have you with ulcers eating away at the pit of your stomach, the migraines from business problems that, that you're desperately concerned and worried about. And God says there's a better way. But the better way is to be totally available and fully open. Any of you would be honest enough to join me in saying, and I do say it first, it's only been in the last few years that I've made any headway in this at all and still have a fur piece to go, but would admit that you have problems being open and trusting and vulnerable. Anybody else with me? <laughs> That's rather significant. All of us were raising our hands. See, all of us have been bumped and bruised enough in life. All of us have been skinned and suckered and deceived and promised but not fulfilled until we have a tendency to build a shell around our lives to protect us defensively and then we wonder why it is difficult for us to be expressive for us to be passionate well you see passion comes out of abandonment and love necessitates vulnerability you cannot love unless you're vulnerable it is not strangers that will hurt. Strangers can say what they want about me. It really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. It doesn't mean a hill of beans. The people that I care for are the ones that what their opinion of me can help or hurt a great deal. There are few ladies in the whole wide world that could truly hurt my life except for the lady that is my wife. Because I have vulnerably opened my life to her in love, there is the possibility, the potential for being hurt. And we come into the kingdom of God and we come in with all of the excess baggage of our lives before. 
the terrible thing, and I wish it were not true, but unfortunately it is, the terrible thing is within the kingdom of God sometimes we found ourselves suckered. Not by God, but by others supposedly within it. We found ourselves loving and taken advantage of. And so both with all the bumps and bruises and hurts and scars and skins that we've had before and the things that have happened to us even within the fellowship of the brethren makes it pretty difficult for us to learn how to be open and vulnerable. But you can receive no more from God than you are willing to be vulnerable to him. I read a long time ago, and I don't really like cliches, but I read this, and it's over the years repeatedly come back to my mind, and it was just a statement that said, no harm can ever come from nail-scarred hands. That's reassuring for me, because it means as difficult as it is to be open and vulnerable and totally available, as scary as it is, the security that I can find is in whom I'm being open with, to whom I choose to abandon myself, to roll off myself and my defensiveness and my protectiveness and to abandon it, to commit it totally to him. There's a poster in the dining room. Look at it sometime tomorrow maybe when you're in there. It's over in the far wall poster that looks like someone has torn it in half until you get close and one half jagged is all black and on the other half is a, sta a, a statement there and I walked over to read it just before supper and it said faith is walking to the very edge of all the light that you have and then daring to take one more step that's what abandonment is that's what openness is that's what availability is that is the very bare minimum out of which we begin to experience from God the warm and fresh and cleansing and healing and empowering and challenging and inspiring up-to-date dealings of the Holy Spirit. You see, you can't keep your mask on and see God. And God sees through the mask anyway. You can't cover all the bases and leave yourself a, an escape and experience the delight of being free in the will of God. You can't be cluttered with a dozen different lesser and unworthy desires and hope that somehow the purpose of God will be revealed to you and realized out from your life because it can't happen. It is possible for you to live a very safe Christian life. It is possible for you to play the percentages in your spiritual life. It's possible for you to so guard yourself and protect yourself and defend yourself and you can have your salvation. But I want to tell you, you will live a narrow life. You'll be waiting in puddles and God has the vastness of his kingdom for you to experience. One thing have I desired, 
and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. And what in the world am I going to do there? I think some of us are scared that to really abandon ourselves to God would be boring. Maybe not now, but did you ever have the idea that God was rather boring and that's why he was primarily for older ladies and children? Huh? If you just blink your eyes twice, I'll know that's a yes. Boy, you guys get quiet. Maybe it's because I get long. You had too much chicken? You ever had the notion that God would be somehow boring? That that's all there were to my life? I hope that you've also discovered that that is the furthest thing from the truth. Jesus Christ was the most exciting man that ever lived. The kingdom of God is the most exciting authority and sovereignty I've ever been a part of. Fellowship with God has been the most invigorating, vital experience I've ever had in all of my life. Openness to God opens our life to the fullness of God. Paul said to the Ephesians in the third chapter, he said, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. It would be great to be filled. It's even greater to be filled with fullness. It's even greater to be filled with all the fullness. But it's absolutely overwhelming to be filled with all of the fullness, which is the fullness of God himself. You know, that was said of, it is said of Jesus, the Holy Spirit records for us, that it pleased God that in him should dwell the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In your mind, walk back through the earthly ministry of Jesus. Dead were raised. Lepers were cleansed. Blind eyes were opened. The discouraged were lifted. Men like Zacchaeus, who were pursuing their own goals and with their own passions, suddenly found their life turned around and the man that by hook and crook had taken everything that he could get for himself, there was a grabber and a grasper in life, suddenly became a giver. Because Jesus entered his life, he said, I'm going to restore fourfold all those that I've cheated and I'm going to sell all that I have and give half of it to the poor. kind of man was it that could walk by a seashore and prominent businessmen, Peter, James, and John, were not just idly casting a pole off the bank. They were prominent, prosperous businessmen who knew their trade and were good at their trade. But what was it about this man? He could walk by that seashore and just simply cast an eye their direction and say, come and follow me, abandon your nets, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they did. What was it that a man sitting at a tax table by name of Matthew fingering the coins he's come to love? And Jesus stops at that tax table and says, Matthew, come and follow me. Matthew fingers the coin for the last time, closes the book, hands it to an assistant, and walks off to be abandoned to the will of God. That doesn't sound to me like your average dull and boring kind of individual. How can I experience the desire that I have? Obedience. That's the tricky one. We really have a problem with obedience, don't we? 
something in our very nature that does not like to obey. child's first words may be daddy or mommy, but if so, his second's got to be no. Isn't that right? Say now, darling little Johnny, don't touch mama's vase. And darling little Johnny doesn't have to be very old before he learns to smile sweetly so that you are deceived momentarily into thinking that he both comprehends and intends to obey until you turn your little innocent back and he reaches out and knocks mama's vase over. That would be humorous if he grew out of it by the time he were four, by the time he were 40, or by the time he were 74. But there's something in all of us that have a real problem being told what to do. We struggle with anyone telling us what to do. We have a problem with that. And you know who the worst offenders are? Church people. And I'm not setting preachers as separate from church people. You see, I don't believe in clergy and laity. I believe that every member of the body of Christ is a ministering member of the body of Christ. And so I'm church people. The only difference between me and anyone else in my church is where we get our paycheck. That's the only difference. So I'm church people. It would be so nice if when we gave our heart to Jesus Christ, we honestly gave our will to Jesus Christ. Tragedy is, that doesn't always happen. I believe that in the New Testament, Salvation and lordship were simultaneous. In most of our experiences, in my experience at least, I can tell you they were not simultaneous. I knew Jesus Christ for a long time as Savior. I gave my heart to the Lord when I was 10 years old. It was a very definite, specific moment. I can remember everything about it, where it happened, when it happened, why it happened, and how it happened. But it was not until just a couple of years ago that I truly surrendered my will to lordship. I don't think that's the way God intended. I don't believe that's the way the Bible teaches it. I just believe that's the way most of us experience it because of this matter being obedient. You see, even when we finally get the right desires and even when we begin to open our life up and be available to God, we still want to reserve the right to finally approve or disapprove what God asks. The bottom line is I still want to be king. A friend of mine a number of months ago was in England if you'll remember, they had their national elections. Was it in the spring, I believe, sometime about that, in which Margaret Thatcher was elected as the prime minister, the first lady prime minister of England. My friend was there during that time. I remember following it with rather with interest and remembering the newscast in which the election was over. Margaret Thatcher had won, and the queen stood before parliament. The ruling monarch of England stood before Parliament to read a prepared statement. Did any of you by chance see the newscast in which they 
gave glimpses of that. There, there was one, and they recorded it. I found out that that was not something that the Queen had written. That was something that verbatim, word for word, was written by Margaret Thatcher, the new Prime Minister. The Queen was required to read what the Prime Minister had written. You see, in England, though they have a monarch, the Queen is primarily just for ceremony. In fact, she's not even allowed to have or express a preference for any of the different uh, rival political parties. She is what we would call a figurehead. So they have all the trappings of a monarchy. The queen is excellent for official things like openings and closings. But all of the day-by-day -day governing is in the hands of the prime minister and parliament. And in the kingdom of God, we have a king, but too often he is just for ceremonies. He is so good to bring out for official openings and closings. Lord, we are gathered in your name, so now, Lord, be with us until we come again. And in between, all of the day-by-day -day government and decisions are in the hands of the prime minister and parliament. And we sing. Do you sing the chorus, He is Lord? He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. Do you? So we stand in service and we sing. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth a royal diadem and crown Him Lord of all. Then we go outside and we struggle with whether or not we're really going to obey. Because He says, have godly desire. He says, trust me, open your life to me, abandon yourself to me, find what it means to live life without limits. Discover true liberty, and true liberty is never found within the restrictions of individualism. Liberty is not discovered by burning all of the guidelines. Liberty is found in submitting your life to someone who's capable of directing it and making it turn out the way it was designed to turn out. That's where liberty is found. So we sing, He is Lord, and in our hearts we say, but I am the Prime Minister. I want to ask you something tonight for you to consider over these next couple of days. Who's really in charge in your life? Not do you have all of the religious trappings. I'm not even asking you if you're saved. Although if you've never faced that question, you shouldn't let a friend or pastor get away from you this evening without talking with them personally. But I'm not really asking that question. I'm asking who's really in charge. I'm asking you when God's will and your will conflict, whose will wins?
I'm asking you in what you want and what God wants aren't identically the same. How open, available, and abandoned are you really? Because those out of those come the seeds of maturity. As I won't be able to rightly respond to all of the situations of my life, moment by moment, circumstance by circumstance, according to God's Bible, biblical patterns of behavior, until I've dealt with these issues. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you and praise you because you are so well able to govern our lives. We would ask you to forgive us that we have been so afraid to trust you with them. Father, I ask you to literally hedge us in tonight. Don't let us slip away easily. Don't let us wiggle our way out of this moment of really having to face ourselves. Not face the way we want others to think of us, face the way that we trick ourselves into thinking, but to face squarely what we see in our own hearts and lives when we stand in the presence of God, because to dwell in your presence, Lord, is a very revealing, exposing kind of experience. In fact, Lord, we like to talk and pray and sing as though your presence is delightful to us, and the truth is your presence scares us to death. Because all the games we've learned how to play and all the pretense we've learned how to master and all the images we've learned how to project and all the masks we've learned how to wear in your presence, suddenly they look all like paper mache. God, that's scary. But you said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so, Lord, we want to open our lives to you tonight and say, bring about purity in our lives. Bring about purity in our desires. Bring about the clear, crystal transparency of the purity of your nature. Lord, is there anything in me? Is there any thought, any ambition, any desire, any appetite, any habit, any, any words? any deeds, any activities that I would be embarrassed to be exposed to you. Dear God, help me to see that before you nothing is hidden, nothing is covered, but everything shall be revealed. And it is far better for me to stand that scrutiny now and face the exposure of it now and abandon myself to experience forgiveness and cleansing and newness and freshness than it is to go on with my games and one day stand in your presence and then find that my life will be tried to see what sort it is, to see whether it's wood, hay, and stubble that perishes, consumed in a moment, or whether it's gold and silver and precious stones. God, what are we building with our lives? What kind of material are we using? What kind of character are we having? 
Not what kind of appearance have we learned. Lord, we have learned so skillfully to have the right appearance. We've mastered having religious vocabulary. Dear God, we're here to learn how to have true spiritual life. God, I ask you to start in Ellen Randolph. There's so much work you have to do yet in me. Lord, my cry is to be real, that I might be godly. Well, everyone is very privately talking to God. I'd ask that no one be looking around, please. Just a moment. You don't know me and you may not yet be comfortable with me. You may not be comfortable with me by Saturday even. But is there anybody here that needs to privately, just between you and me and God, just to slip a hand up and say, Alan, I really want to have the right kind of desires in my life. I want to experience new openness to God. I want to surrender the authority of my life to the Lordship of Christ in a way that I never have before. You just slip your hand up and then you put it right back down. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for these honest, searching, reaching hearts. Lord, I'm so excited about what you are doing and what you will yet do in these days, not because of me. God, I come with such feelings of being empty and bankrupt. And yet, Father, I know that this is a, a delightful assignment that you've shared in my life. I count it a privilege for the opportunity of these hours with these men. I thank you for each and every one of them, Lord. And I'm excited for the potential and possibilities that you see in their lives. We haven't come here coincidentally. We've come here by divine design. We're here now. And we surrender ourselves to begin the walk into maturity. In the name of Jesus, amen.